Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and with me is my co-host Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Uh, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has been dormant for a while, but I'm starting to hear rumors we may get another episode soon, so keep an eye out for that. Um, you can find us on Twitter if you want to tell us things or whatever. I'm at Tennis Abstract. Carl is at Carl Bialik. So episode 86 today, with virtually no tennis happening in the world except for the obligatory 10 Futures events or whatever, we're going to talk about a new documentary available on Netflix called Guillermo Vilas Settling the Score. Uh, this is, is new this year, although the story behind it is one that people paying attention to tennis have probably heard or gotten some inkling of over the last several years. It has been in the news. Uh, the idea is that Vilas, who peaked at number two in the ATP rankings, should have actually peaked at number one. So... Um, an Argentine journalist named Eduardo Pupo uh, made it his personal quest to uh, prove to the world that Vilas should have been number one. Vilas was very invested in it. Some some other people got involved. The ATP, <clears throat> pardon me, has continually denied these requests to set the record straight as Pupo and Vilas see it. And this is actually still ongoing. Apparently, there's still litigation over this thing, which kind of blows my mind. But anyway, I, I should have said already we're going to spoil the bejesus out of this. So if if you want to see the film and for some reason you don't know what happened, then you should stop listening about 60 to 75 seconds ago. Uh, or maybe the damage is already done and you can keep listening. That is up to you. So it, it, it's, it, it's bewildering to me that a documentary was, was made about a guy who was number two in the ATP rankings and should have been number one. I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing I would write a blog post about and then no one would read it. But still, people aren't reading my blog posts, but this documentary exists. So, Carl, let's start with, with one of the big issues here. It's, this whole thing hinges on the importance of the number one ranking as opposed to the number two ranking and some vague notion of tennis greatness, which Vila's already had. Uh, is the number one ATP ranking really that important? I probably will never be ranked number one, so maybe I can't identify, but it seems like it doesn't need to be. I mean, you you mentioned in, in the show notes you prepped for the, this episode something that also struck me in the episode that maybe the strongest case for like the general importance of being having been number one, as opposed to the specific importance Vilas imparted to it, uh, was Mats Vilander describing what a bigger impact it has on random people he meets when he can say that he was number one in the world than if he can say that he won a Grand Slam tournament. Now, Vilander like I'm sorry, who are these people? <laughs> Maybe I overestimate the tennis knowledge of the, the, the random person on the street, but I think it would be pretty impressive to say, yeah, I won the French Open. Don't you think? Yeah, and, and I don't... Yes, and I would think it would be as well-known. But also, I was going to say, Vilander and Vilas didn't just win one. There are plenty of players who won just one Grand Slam title and never came close to number one. But these two are multiple Slam winners. So it could, you know, say I've won it many times. But the, the other point that you raise is that your question wisely was very specific to the ATP number one ranking. And especially in the days when it was young and new and mostly used uh, to 
you know, set up entries and seating for tournaments and wasn't being issued very regularly. There was plenty of competition. And Vilas could certainly say, I was number one in the world. He just wouldn't be able to say ATP number one. He was number, he was named number one in the world while he was playing. Uh, as we'll discuss, he has a new number one ranking that he can also brag about. So, um, you know, on, on, on in that sense, no, not that important. There are increasingly, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, efforts by the ATP to turn this into a club, to recognize them. There's a book sitting on my bookcase of like 40 years of, of number ones. And I think for that book, there was a gathering of all the living number ones, which I think was all of them, which was amazing. Um, and so I guess like over time it's become more important, but for someone who was actually like living in the seventies and who, you know, posed for a magazine cover about being number one before he even knew if he would attain that, that title for the magazine, it seems odd that the specific ATP ranking is so significant. Maybe he heard about that gathering and, and that was what did it. Maybe he just saw his name left out a lot in historical lists, but it's surprising. Yeah, and it, it isn't, you make a good point that it's become almost a brand. And you could make the case that Vilas has lost stature and maybe even lost some income uh, by not being part of this club with Bjorn Borgs and Boris Beckers of the world. But it's it's been an obsession from the beginning. And that's one of the things that is one of the threads that runs through the whole documentary and makes Vilas not always the most likable guy that he it emphasizes he was number one of his club he was number one of argentina he wanted to be number one of the world he was constantly querying the atp during his career um protesting that he wasn't number one uh it, it's been a can a concern maybe even an obsession of his for a really really long time and i'm not sure how much that changes for the fact that he should have been number one briefly for at, at least uh, the conclusion of the film of Pupo and the the programmers who ended up doing the work that he should have been number one for for six weeks in 1975 but Carl since you you bring it up I'd like to to give Vilas another number one award I ran my my ELO rankings I generated ELO rankings for every week from the beginning of the open era through the 70s and it's interesting. He, according to Elo, Vilas was number one for one week in August 1975. So about the same time as the weeks that uh, that now it looks like he he should have been number one. But then um, he was number one for 19 weeks from October 1977 through the end of February 1978, and that's more what people expected. Um, I think Pupo was focusing his efforts on 1977. 1977 is certainly the, the the really impressive year of his career when he this is on tennis abstract i'm not totally sure i have every every match from the 70s but according to tennis abstract vilas went 131 and 13 in 1977 i can barely even wrap my head around these numbers and just eyeballing it he had a winning streak of like 7000 to end the season so it's it's otherworldly stuff and i'm not surprised at all he ended up at number one it's more surprising that that didn't result in an ATP ranking of number one at the end of that season even if that was the year that as you point out Carl he was the the world tennis number one on the cover of that magazine so that that raises another question like uh, and it's 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 one that still applies now 
how how much weight should smart fans be giving to number one? Like we know there's limitations in the system. We know there's this guy who wins 131 matches who somehow doesn't become number one. Should that just invalidate the whole enterprise and, and tell us that the ATP rankings aren't that important anyway? Well, to the extent that they were a target and, and more, more so now probably are a target, uh, now that they are published more regularly, now that they're widely disseminated, now that there are these gatherings and books and, and a million stat sites that give you weeks at number one, I think they're important because they're tracked. So, you know, I think we've seen decisions by guys you think are chasing bigger numbers than one Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, where they'll play a tournament because they see they can get to number one or they'll end their season early if they can't. Um, so that that shows to me that it's it's being treated as as pretty important. Uh, we haven't heard as much about weeks at number one or the number one ranking in the WTA lately, probably because the biggest sort of chase for history is Serena Williams. She hasn't been near number one for a little while, partly because of how much she plays, uh, and the people who are reaching number one are are pretty young and and not yet racking up like very large numbers, but. I think in recent years, especially, there's been a lot of awareness. It's it's accepted. It's official. In in the older years, I don't think we should take it as seriously. And that that was something that I saw mentioned. I think in the film, I, I also read a bunch about the film. So now I can't remember if it was it was an article about the film, but it made the point. Hey, Connors knew the rules of the ranking system and he would have played differently if there were different rules like which weeks it was being published and so on so if you took weeks at number one away from jimmy connors that would be unfair because he was targeting that were players really targeting that at the time i don't i don't know there wasn't a lot of evidence of players besides vilas caring tremendously about it at the time but um but i think in more recent years it seems to be important even if something like elo uh, or various other alternatives that would, for instance, adjust for uh, quality of opponent are um, doing a better job of predicting future results. So do you think players knew then what weeks the rankings would be published? I mean, this is a really big question for whether the ATP is uh, is doing some injustice to Vilas. So did, did something you read suggest that Connors knew when new rankings were coming out? It didn't directly suggest it. It suggested that anything that would change history would be unfair because he was playing, he was, everyone was playing by the rules as they existed then. But to your question of did people actually understand fully what those rules were, was there even a plan? I mean, what, <laughs> I think we, we've, we've talked about this. And, you know, one thing I was, I was hoping to get more of out of the film, but we didn't really get much uh, from the ATP in the film was how did this thing exactly work? Like, was there one person whose job this was and she had three other things to do every week and this was the fourth most important. And so when when it it rose to the top of the list, it happened. When it didn't, the old ranking stood, even if that meant that 10 or so weeks passed. I mean, it, it, there's no reason to think that there was a, a in advance set publishing schedule because the schedule seems so random. Um, by the way, I think you said he had six weeks. I thought that he had f 
according to Pupo's calculations, that Vilas would have been number one at, in six weeks where the rankings weren't published. I thought it was five in 75 and then two in 77. But in any case, not a lot of weeks, certainly very susceptible to these vagaries of the publishing schedule. And and yet, seven weeks at number one would have been ahead of five guys who have officially been number one in terms of weeks at number one. So it's not nothing. Because Pat Rafter was at number one for like 12 minutes. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they rounded up to a week. And, and Moya is the other example. Carlos Moya was there for two weeks. Which is interesting. I mean, this is not something that I intend to talk about or is particularly relevant. But I think of those guys as number ones, especially Moya. I mean, Rafter, I know. I think Rafter was the one who didn't end up playing a single match while he was number one. But the other guys did. And I remember Moya as number one. I don't remember Moya as a short-term number one, although now maybe I will. Uh, That would be be one point in favor of it being important to Vilas to be known as as number one, regardless of how short he had it. But I want to make sure I have something right. I mean... our memories clash a bit on when Pupo discovered Vilas would be number one. But am I right that all of the weeks that he should have been number one were weeks that the ATP did not publish rankings? So it's not it's not it's a question of the frequency, not a question of the ATP making some kind of calculation error, right? Well, I think this was another point. You know, for a movie that spends as long as it did on the vagaries of ranking systems and spreadsheets and calculations and and the kinds of things that should make you and me the target audience, I I felt a little unsatisfied at times with the the specifics that I was looking for not not being there. I, they they often refer, Pupo often referenced things like errors, at least in the, the English subtitles. But I think when it comes down to it, the weeks at number one were all unpublished ones. I guess both could be true because you could find errors in the published weeks, but they could be errors that don't bring Vilas up to number one. But yeah, I, I think the, the crux of their argument specifically about number one is about if we had had rankings for those weeks, he would have been there. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to make sure because certainly the the message of the movie is that even from it sounds like even from the beginning they think Vilas was was treated unfairly um i mean you can argue about whether the atp should have been running these calculations more frequently but i'm i'm pretty sure it's as you point out carl it's it's more because it wasn't a priority i mean first of all they didn't have a computer where they could just enter the results and push a button i mean the the programmer who ended up helping out Eduardo Pupa, Marianne Chopin, uh, he he made some comment about thinking the process took a day or two. And I, the way he said it, and maybe it's his English combined with my misunderstanding, it, he made me think he was talking about a very slow computer, but maybe he meant a, a person who was doing it by hand. I'm pretty sure they were doing it by hand at that point. Um, yeah, they, they, they weren't setting aside the time to do that every Monday, like, like they do now. And the funny thing is... There absolutely were mistakes. I mean, when I was completely behind everything Eduardo Pupo said about missing certain results and and making mistakes in calculations, we should give a shout out to Marion here. Most people probably aren't aware of his work before watching the movie, but he's the guy behind the website OpenEraRankings.com. He he was working on this stuff on Men's Tennis Forum for a long time. I think before uh, before he and Pupo met, he 
he and some other volunteers have done a huge amount of work kind of recovering these old results, doing the calculations properly, researching exactly how the the rankings worked at various times. So bravo to him, regardless of what it says for Vilas. Um, but the point I've been talking around for a while is that there absolutely were mistakes and omissions and miscalculations and, and every variation you can imagine. So I am not surprised at all to find that there were mistakes. If anything, I, I'm surprised there there weren't more. That at least in if we take the ATP rankings the way they were presented, like if we take the, the sets of rankings they published on the dates they published them, um, they were somehow correct, at least in the sense that Vilas did not did not deserve number one according to that ranking according to the algorithm on those days so i've talked a lot carl i feel like i should have a question for you but i don't like whoa, whoa. well i i just wanted to jump in on this idea of how spotty the calculations were and and how also the the underlying data used in the calculations was uh, hard to pin down and and, and variable i mean on the one hand, not surprising. It, it was a different time in tennis. It was uh, there were competing pro tours, um, and then of course it was a different time in computers. Like it's always funny for me to hear computer rankings, but at the time that was a really big deal. And I, I think to this question of like the extent to which Vilas and the other players understood this, it's not like they would have had computing devices, so they wouldn't have known people who had them necessarily. They wouldn't have like seen one. They couldn't have envisioned whatever the ATP was using, which maybe was pen and paper. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't be surprising that it would be slow, that it would be wrong, that it would involve some anal a lot of analog tools and, and spotty record keeping. And, and just, you know, to your point earlier about the amazing numbers of Vilas's season on Tennis Abstract, 131 and 13, I think you said, um, I read a bunch about this movie, which meant reading a bunch about Vilas and especially about his 1977 season, which set a lot of records. And it, it reminds me some of the numbers of like the, the 1870s pitching lines where a pitcher in baseball would have had like 60 or 70 wins where today having 20 would be a great achievement. And no one could seem to agree on Vilas's numbers for 1977. I saw like 14 titles, 15, 16. I mean, any of those are staggering, but who knows what the right one is and what that even means because it probably depends on classifications of tournaments that only existed that year and that we have very little information on. Um, he had a winning streak that year. Was it 46 or 50 matches in a row? There's some confusion on that, which may have to do with maybe he withdrew from a match but didn't actually play it, but I think may have to do with other things too. And then the number of wins he had also was unclear. What's clear is he played a hell of a lot of matches, a hell of a lot more than his rivals for number one and that it's not just the sort of data errors of the ranking system, the publishing schedule of the ranking system, but the incentives of the ranking system at the time that, that went a long way to determining whether that added up to number one ranking. Yeah, it's it, it, a few things there. One is just with the data. One interesting thing is even though the ATP is denying VLS's request, they're worried about rewriting history. In the last five years or so, the ATP has massively improved their data set from the 70s. I mean, it, it, what was it, what was illustrative for me was when I first started Tennis Abstract, I, I pulled all the data I could from the ATP website, 
And I knew the results were spotty. There were a lot of tournaments I knew should be there that weren't. There were some tournaments that were missing the first round, stuff like that. Um, and then I started getting these these bug reports that I was missing this tournament. The ATP site had it. I was missing this other tournament. The ATP site had it. I was missing this match. The ATP site had it. You get the idea. And uh, I think sometime last year, I went through and filled in all those gaps. And it's a ton. I mean, the, you don't think of the ATP as particularly receptive to this sort of thing, partly because of the coverage they've gotten in the VLAS case. But at least in some regards, they're not rewriting history, but they're doing a pretty good job uh, filling in the open era history of, of VLAS's time. So they increasingly have the data. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that to to prove that my stats of 131 wins are exactly right, or however many however many titles that is. Ooh, I've got 16 titles in 1977. So maybe I invented some data to add to what the ATP has. But regardless, it's a, it's it's an amazing year. So you were hinting at something, Carl. I think um, I think I know what you're getting at, but you didn't say it outright. Uh, the the rankings then were based on an average of points at, at at tournaments. I'm not sure whether it took the best 18 or the best sum number like they do now, but Vilas played a ton as pointed out by those 140 some matches. I don't think anybody else played that much in 1977. Um, Borg or Connors might have won several titles, but certainly not as many. Uh, would Vilas have have done better? Maybe would he have, have had a clearer shot at number one if he if he played just a totally different kind of schedule? It's hard to argue with 46 or 50 straight matches. It seemed like he was getting stronger, not weaker and fatigued from playing so much. And, and you know, one of the things that, like, I expected to hear next when I heard how many more matches and titles he won than Borgen Connors is that his titles were all small, but he won two slams and made the final of the third. So he outdid them at the big tournaments too. I mean, I I think lots of the top players these days manage their schedule very carefully, make sure that they're um, at their best at the biggest tournaments and barely play the smallest ones. But for whatever reason in, in 77 for Vilas, that didn't seem to be the right formula in everything but ranking it seemed like he was he was scheduling pretty well yeah and they make the point in the film that he could play all day I mean, they have Ian Tyriak trying to to wear him out playing having him on court for eight hours to to see whether he ever gets tired and never gets tired warming up for an hour and a half before a slam final I mean clearly the issue is not fatigue um so I don't understand this about the rankings at the time. Maybe you know better than I do. This, so there's this idea that it was the average of results, not the total of results. And looking at his 1977 season, at least according to Tennis Abstract, he ends with one, two, three, four, five titles in Tehran, Bogota, Santiago, Buenos Aires, and Johannesburg. His second title in Johannesburg that year, I think. Um, and the competition is, it's okay. I mean, there's some some good names there he beats, uh, but it's not it's not the top names. There's no Borg or Connors in this mix. It looks like he's playing a looks like he's playing a series of two fifties or five hundreds in in modern terminology. So is <clears throat> is that partly the issue that it seems wrong that someone can win two slams in a year and have all these other wins and not end the year as official number one? 
mean, is that the problem? Was was it all these lesser tournaments that were dragging down his average? Yeah, I think it was said in the film that if there's some at the time the way the rankings worked, you could win a title and bring down your ranking because you know the maximum you could get for that title was was lower, um, which is like probably an ingredient of the ranking formula that someone should have recognized was a poor one and and removed. But there's probably so many other so many other considerations. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, hey, he only had two slams and like three other big titles. And, and at those tournaments, this was his, his record. But no no ranking system, unless you account for score, no no rating or ranking system that I would respect would, would actually um, dock you credit for, um, for playing and winning a tournament. Yeah, and that's one of the magical things about Elo that you can you can argue about the parameters, but the idea is really simple. If you win, you get more points. If you lose, you lose points. And the amount you win or lose depends on who you play. That's it. And you can argue about whether the numbers should be different for slams or slam finals or whatever. But um, but even if the underlying math is hard to understand, the results are very easy to understand. And it it does kind of tally with common sense that Vilas won two slams. He won all these other matches, and according to Elo, against very very good competition in Borg and Connors, he held on to the number one ranking for about a third of a year, uh, which is at least what his intuition told him he should have been doing anyway with the official ATP rankings. He just maybe didn't really understand the nature of the algorithm he was trying to optimize. Certainly, no one would have uttered a sentence like that about tennis in 1977. I guess most people don't now. Uh, but there was no optim optimizing for the ranking system back then. So enough about the, the, the nature of number one for the moment. One big issue I had with the film is that it's being presented as the, the journalist Eduardo Pupo's quest to search for the truth. He wants to find the truth. Um, he wants to fix these errors, whether they be omissions or miscalculations or whatever. Um, and that sounds like a very noble thing. I mean, uh, there have probably been other documentaries made where the protagonist is on a search for truth. Uh, but he's already decided what the truth is, right? I mean, he's, he, his goal isn't to search for truth. His goal is to search for evidence that proves that Guillermo Vilas was number one in the ATP ranking system. I mean, and am I... Carl, am I selling him short when I say that? Is that it, it, is there something noble to to Pupo's quest? Well, I think what's what's noble in his quest is that he's motivated by the desire to find that, but he follows truthful means. Like he he seems to genuinely want to get the complete record of all these tournaments and to get the correct rankings for everybody. Uh, now, his passion for doing it is not to get the complete historical record. It's that he needs to do that to make his case. So he's only, he's more of like a, a lawyer. And in fact, a lawyer ends up getting into it or, or an advocate um, than a journalist in, in that sense. But he, d he doesn't seem to cut any corners around trying to, to get the truth. It's just that what what makes this into a 13-year project, what makes this into something that seems to 
jeopardize his his marriage and his relationship with with his children and his social life and everything else is that this will then show the thing that he was setting out to show so i agree it's it's a it's not the typical uh pure so never pure but the seemingly pure uh quest just for truth yeah that's a, that's a good point um i i didn't think about it this way at the time but i mean i've i've read a lot of books that i enjoyed that were borderline conspiracy theories but written by someone who was responsible in the way they approached it like if if someone wants to say that you know the KGB was responsible for the assassination assassination of John, of John F Kennedy then I'm probably going to doubt them i'm going to want some pretty impressive truth but if somebody spends 10 years trying to prove it they're probably going to find some interesting things along the way you might disagree with their uh, their conclusions but maybe there'll be some useful stuff in there uh, and and certainly to the extent that this quest was responsible for cleaning up some of the ATP's data for um, for Marion and his his team to, to to improve their rankings throughout the 70s. Like something good has come of this, even if uh, Vilas doesn't get what he perceives to be, be justice. And that's the next thing I want to talk about, that the ATP has repeatedly decided not to, quote unquote, rewrite history. They're not going to anoint Vilas on number one. Uh, even though there's, I mean, there's a clear case to be made. It doesn't seem like the ATP is giving up a lot. To if they just said, okay, you're right, he should have been number one. We just didn't calculate the rankings that week. If we had, he would have been number one. Thus, he deserves it. Thus, welcome to the club, Guillermo. Come hang out with Bjorn, Bjorn Borg and eat some more yogurt or whatever. Like, can you think of any good reasons why the ATP wouldn't do that? Or what what their thinking might be? Their public stance seems to be, well, they didn't use this phrase, but it seems to be this would open a can of worms. That if if he should have been number one but wasn't, then what about the guy who was um, number 50 but should have been number 40? I mean, that's an extreme version of their case. But I think they could just do it all in one fell swoop if the if – the, information is there and if they know the formula it seems like the simplest solution would be pretty much as you said but doing it by saying we're going to we're going to publish the exact rankings as we would have in those weeks if we had they are now part of history and they that applies all the way down the list and we'll continue to if we find major errors um then we'll we'll correct things but that that will fill in a gap so it's not it's not even rewriting things it's, it's writing down things that were true but were just never written down who knows maybe they were written down in atp headquarters and they didn't get around to sharing them publicly uh so i i wish for pupo's sake and and Vilas's to the extent he's still sadly aware of what's of what's happening with this case uh for their sake most of all i wish that were the the outcome and it seems like a reasonable outcome given that no one can make a really strong case for why those rankings weren't published yeah i i agree with you i get the sense that the atp doesn't want to open this can of worms and you're absolutely right there there's a clear solution i'm not sure i would i would follow ex exactly what you're suggesting if i understood what you meant but one thing i added in our notes is like the, there are people out there who've, who've done the work to essentially fix the historical record. Uh, I mean, the, the website openerrorankings.com, I think they, 
there's a subscription thing now, so it's not all free. But for a long time, you could go on the forum, on Men's Tennis Forum, or you could go on this site and look at, you know, August 25th, 1975. There were no official rankings that day, but you could look at what the rankings should have been. And that, much more than what's on the ATP site, is the best approximation of what we know about results, about the formula, uh, what the situation was on that day. And if I were the ATP, I would buy that. I mean, I guess I don't know what negotiations may or may not have happened behind the scenes, but I'm guessing they're just trying to ignore it. If they're concerned about opening the can of worms, I think the opportunity is there to open it and slam it shut all in one fell swoop. As you point out, Carl, you can keep the history, you can keep the as published on this day rankings from 1975 or 1977 if you want. But if somebody out there knows what it should have been back then, I mean, there's no there's no rewriting of history. There's just better calculation with better computers and more attentive volunteers happening now. Like, open the can of worms, let everybody wonder about whether they should have been number 45, and then answer every single one of those questions. I mean, that's that that's a possible thing to have happen. I mean, do you think that's a bridge too far for the ATP as it exists these days? No, but I think now that they've kind of said no firmly a few times and seen you know sometimes organizations will will do that initially and then see what the the public response is what the media response is and and this has been covered this this quest for velas by pupo has been covered in quite a lot of places internationally including in the new york times and christopher clary is, is interviewed in the film and i think they've seen that the the typical coverage is this is really sad for Vilas. It would be nice for him. It, it's impressive what these guys have done, uh, but it's kind of ambiguous what the outcome should be. And that's not what all the coverage is, but that's what a lot of it is. Um, and have just decided, I think, to, to weather any f- further criticism and move on. Um, and they have so many so many challenges right now besides this that I, I, I just expect that, that that's the last we'll hear from them on it. But there's no, nothing stopping the proprietor of Tennis Abstract from, you know, throwing a party for all the all-time ELO number ones and issuing a, a book and, and basically, you know, competing with ATP. You can even have um, digital magazine cover shoots. I uh, honestly have thought about that, but I'm afraid of Ilya Nastasi. I... I don't think I'd be comfortable in the same room as him. You're supposed to be jumping in and laughing, Carl. I need some feedback from my it's, joke. It's, it's a good line. It's, it's, it's terrific. I was, I was distracted working out some kind of joke of like, you could, um, you could fend him off by renaming Elo Ely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you don't have to be at the party, but you can throw it. Now, that sounds more like my kind of thing. I'll throw a party and then not go. That's perfect. Uh, it will be socially distanced, at least for me. So, so okay. I, I, some of the issues raised by the film, as we've discussed them so far, are maybe more interesting than the film itself. Uh, I don't want to speak for you, Carl, but I did not particularly enjoy this documentary. Um, I would not really recommend that people watch it unless they're super interested. I mean, there is some good 
the lost footage from some of his slam finals and some surprisingly some footage from practicing with Ian Tyriak. So if you could pull some of that stuff out, I'd be interested in seeing it, but that's maybe, maybe 10 maximum 15 minutes of, of the documentary that had a running time, just over 90 minutes. So, um, don't feel like it was the best 90 minutes I ever spent watching tennis stuff on TV. Carl, am I, am I selling it short or are you with me here? No, I'm with you. I, I was surprised actually by how little tennis there was in a tennis in a movie about a tennis star, a a former number one, according to some. Uh, I I did enjoy hearing his voice, including his voice from the time and some of the some of the archival footage that wasn't directly of tennis, but you know didn't. And also, there were an impressive number of impressive tennis people talking about him. You mentioned Borg and Yogurt and, and Federer and Nadal had, had views on him, Sabatini, uh, lots of tennis writers we know and love. So so there there were there were parts of it I enjoyed. I think I could have probably pulled out thirty minutes um and, and been pretty satisfied. Um but I, I you know, I was struck by one one thing that struck me by the, the figures of the the people trying to get the history right for tennis is that this is a very, not a very common, but there are like several people out there. You've probably met or heard from all of them who are trying to do similar things. I've written about Ubaldo and a team at, at Ubi Tennis. You've done incredible public work with Tennis Abstract on this front. There's lots of work in forums as mentioned in the film and more of like delving into the psychology of that and, and what has compelled people and, and how far they've gotten with with trying to get the the history books corrected, as you say, the ATP records have been. I, I do find that an interesting topic, again, maybe as a very small target audience, but there wasn't that much of what was behind that in the film. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And Steve Tigner and his review on Tennis.com of this film, he had a, a funny line where he said, he was describing how the movie starts out more about Vilas and then it, it, it takes a left turn and it's about Pupo and the quest to to prove that Vilas is number one. And he says that this is the line where in a, in, in a review you'd expect it to say Pupo is the one who turns out to be the more interesting character. But then that's not what happens. <laughs> and I think you make a good point that there's the impulse behind all this type of of historical work i don't want to say rewriting history but repairing history or recovering history um it is interesting and, and it's certainly not limited to tennis there are people doing this in every sport and certainly outside of sports as well um but i didn't really get the sense that that the documentary was interested in engaging with that i mean they have they, they have marion chopin who's one of these guys who's done a tremendous amount of work he's really added to our knowledge of tennis in this period um but they're not really talking to him about that. They're talking to him about Eduardo, his contacts with Eduardo, what the results are saying about Vilas, which is really selling him short as a guest, I think, or as a contributor to what we know about tennis. Um, so we know that we agree there, there wasn't as much tennis in this film as, as we would have liked. Um, so as a documentary, it maybe felt like we, we were sold something different from what we ended up receiving. I have, I feel like I should have watched a lot more tennis documentaries than I have. I have a lot of good intentions to watch them, and then I often, often don't. Carl, I feel like you've watched more than I have. Um, for people who watch this film and come away thinking, I want to watch some tennis documentaries. I just want to watch something better than this. Do you have any suggestions? 
Ooh, tennis documentaries. I, the the ones I can think of also don't spend a ton of time with tennis. I'm, I'm probably missing some. I mean, there there have been some good thirty for thirties. There was a so that more like a documentary short. There was one with Everett Navratilova where they look back on their rivalry and, and friendship, and I think that one was really strong. Um, there's a there's there's a McEnroe one that's pretty artsy, uh, so I don't remember it being like very uh, focused on the tennis itself, but creating more of a mood around him. I was thinking the the movie that I maybe got the most tennis out of recently that's coming to mind is the Emma Stone. Billie Jean King, Battle of the Sexes, just in that they show so many of the points from the actual, um, you know, climactic match. And yet, you know, it's not documentary footage, it's reenacted, but they are are actually trying to play, the, the body doubles who are tennis players try to play out the actual points that were played in that match. And I think that's just like really... Um, ambitious and interesting to watch uh from from a tennis point of view did you do a 30 love with someone involved in the movie i think so you know i'm trying to give you a plug here carly don't even remember <laughs> i didn't prep for this question jeff come on I, I don't have the full catalog in my in my head that's why i publish it so i don't have to have it you know the whoever was this functionary at the atp had to keep all these things in in mind because there's no computer to do it Fine, fine, fine. Um, that's a good point, though. I, I, and I, I was going to mention that movie as well. And, of course, because it's a Hollywood movie, it's a, they do a better job telling the story in a compelling way. And they, they, can have, they can take some liberty, although, as you say, they were they tried to be very accurate with the tennis itself. And I just want to make a plug for, for watching actual tennis. And it, it, granted, this is uh, it, kind of hit or miss, but some of the vintage matches I've watched are tremendous because of the commentary of the tennis itself and the, uh, or the combination of the tennis itself and the commentary. Like for instance, I've watched a couple of matches from the 1986 Forest Hills tournament with Arthur Ashe doing commentary. So there is great tennis, but then you also have Arthur Ashe saying smart things and you get to see Arthur Ashe in 1986, which is pretty cool. And uh, Carl and I have had a conversation going in the background about this world team tennis footage on YouTube that, this is all linking back to my last episode when I was uh, talking with the author Stephen Blush about his book about world team tennis. You can watch Renee Richards and John Lucas play mixed doubles in a world team tennis match in 1978. Not only do you get to see the tennis, you get to see interviews with the with the players. You get to see um, Vic Braden and Julie Heldman doing commentary. I mean, all a lot of the good stuff that you get out of a documentary, you can also get out of archival tennis footage like that and, and maybe people want to be more packaged than that maybe i have more of an appetite for watching hours and hours and hours of old tennis footage waiting for the the good stuff to come along but i mean i, I think it's it's an underrated source of of a lot of entertainment so carl uh, we, we talked about doing this one for 45 minutes and we're 43 minutes in so it's a good time to wrap up we've both given our pretty negative overall views on on the documentary and also talked about all the issues number one um any any final thoughts anything that we haven't discussed yet you wanted to to throw into our talk about the v documentary 
Well, you also pointed me to, in the spirit of what you just said, you pointed me to some footage on YouTube of, of Vilas and, and finals and uh, getting to see him and Borg play for an hour and a half at a French Open final, which is about how long it took for the winner to to dominate, uh, was was maybe as revealing and, and more enjoyable. Uh, God, I don't want to be so hard on the documentary. There's a lot to like about the documentary, but it... it, it, it just didn't need to be quite so long and um, and wish it had more tennis. Yeah, so there was plenty of tennis in, in YouTube full matches and uh, maybe we shouldn't name them too specifically in case some rights holder notices. <laughs> I think generally stuff from the 70s is safe. I, I, I say that and maybe it's famous last words, but uh, generally anything about pre-1990 uh, stays up on YouTube. There are some exceptions with Wimbledon finals, things like that, but... Um, should be safe. I like how carefully you didn't spoil the 1977 French Open final. That's very nice of you, Carl. It's impossible to find the winner unless you watch the whole thing. Oh, one other thing. Was Tyriac his coach and a rival on tour at the same time? That's a good... I didn't think about that, but now that you mention it, he was on tour in 1977. Um, I think they played a few times. I mean, I don't yeah. think Tyriac was in his league, but... They were at the same tournaments, and I think they played a few. I just found that bizarre and kind of strange that it wasn't commented on in the film. They not only played. Let's see. Let's let's get these details right. Um, they played four times in 1977, two more times in 78 and 79. Uh, the remarkable thing is the first two times they met in Ocean City and in Monte Carlo in 1977, Tyriac took the first set. Uh, Vilas won them all in the end, but I wonder, I'm sure one or more of our listeners will know the story better than I do, uh, but I wonder if it's a situation where Tyriac was there and you know he could he could make the cut or get a wild card or whatever, um, so he just ended up playing. At oh, that interesting. Point, at that point, he was 40, but I mean, Monte Carlo wouldn't have been that flexible with entries maybe maybe ocean city and louisville and tehran would have been but not monte carlo so it's an interesting story and this is this is a plea i'm just going to throw out there to see what the universe brings back i think eon tyriac might be the most interesting tennis character of the last i don't know 50 60 years if you think about everything he's done from being an an olympic hockey player for romania to being a, a tour stalwart to being a coach of not just Vilas, but many other great players, to now um, being a billionaire and a tournament owner. I mean, no one compares to Ian Tyriac. And if, I hope someone out there is writing a biography. I would love to know more. There's some some good links on his Wikipedia page if you follow the links to a couple of old New York Times articles. Uh, he's been an entertaining character for a really long time. But whenever I read about him or see him in a documentary, I always want to know more. So I hope somebody out there is working on on producing that. Or a documentary. Or a documentary. Sure. Yeah, just just keep it short. Let's not talk about whether Vilas is number one or number two. Vilas being great, winning a lot of tournaments is, is enough for my purposes. So I feel like that's a good note to end on. We'll talk about talk about some of these these positives with the doc. I think Carl and I have some of the same instincts here where it's it's always easy to rip on something when when you don't like it or you disagree with it, but at the same time, it takes a ton of work, a lot of which is valuable to produce something like a, a book or a documentary about this stuff. And we're 
think it's safe to say we're always better off that it exists unless it's just active disinformation or something. And this is, this is not that. So, um, definitely some worthwhile stuff in there. We all learned something from watching it and learned even more by following some tennis abstract links after we were done. So Carl, thank you for joining me for this one and watching the documentary with me in a socially distanced way. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode as well as the documentary if you watched it or you're taking advantage of your 90 minutes of not watching the documentary to do something else equally or more fun. So that's been episode 86 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. You can always find all our episodes of Tennis Abstract or more specifically podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can find us on Twitter at Tennis Abstract or at Carl Bialik. Check out Carl's upcoming episodes of 30 Love and we'll see you next time.